BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Hey, y'all, you want to get saucy, pert, and greasy with the ladies from someplace underneath? Well, then slip and slide right on down to Ryman Auditorium in Nashville, Tennessee. The Country Jamboree from Last Podcast Network is June 18th. Tickets out now. Get on. While they're spicy. Get on with it. <laughs> yeah, It's Nashville, baby. <laughs> I feel like I'm perpetuating stereotype. Get on. Come on. We howl. series the curse of appalachia but i think what i meant is corporate greed <laughs> i think that's what curse means maybe uh, yeah because both you and i have lived around the appalachia areas and i don't want to say haunted because that has like a negative connotation but when you're Depends there you're talking to i think that sounds great i know yeah well we both think haunted is like a delight mm-hmm. but when you're there you just feel like Oh, the world is so much older than I can comprehend. Mm-hmm. It just feels like... It does feel ancient. ain't In Appalachian yeah. Mountains, I was looking into them. They're some of the oldest mountains in the world. Yeah, we got one. See, everybody's... Oh, we got the Coliseum and all that. We got some old mountains. Hell yeah, baby. Take that, Greece. Yeah. Welcome to Someplace Underneath. I'm Natalie Jean. I'm Amber Nelson. And we're here starting another war with another country. <laughs> Appalachia. It's oh. hard to not say it like that. Oh, yeah. And like do a little dance because I do love like their, their dancing and the fiddles and the music. Like they have such a rich culture that's, I think, pretty cool. A lot of it is very cool. The clogging. That's fun to me to watch. You see these people clog. I dig, man. It's like tap dancing, but like everyone's smiling. Yeah. Well, it's yeah. It's like tap dancing without the sequence. Yes. Yeah, no, it's cool. There's a lot that is definitely very charming and interesting and lots of good things. Some bad things also. Uh, Definitely some houses I saw when you drive up in the mountains. It's like, don't you stop? Don't you get gas? Don't you ask for directions? And some of the houses, quote unquote, were like built by people. Like no, no company did it. Like somebody found the lumber and did it themselves. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I've told this story before, but... Years ago, I was driving to Canada with my friends and an an old boyfriend of mine, and it was way before smartphones were uh, in in existence. So 
we, well, we got lost and you couldn't just like Google Maps your way out. Terrifying. We were driving up to Toronto and we ended up on some offshoots of a main highway in northern Pennsylvania, which is like the more towards the top, like northern Appalachia. But Appalachia actually goes all the way up. Like, oh, yeah. I mean, Appalachian Mountains go all the way to Canada, but we don't consider that Appalachia. And all the way down to the south, Mississippi. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They're huge. Yeah, it's it's massive and also pennsylvania's spooky as hell oh for sure it's crazy drive they have how like the the doors and i'm sorry to take away the doors on the second top of the house i'm so excited about this (laughs) because the snow gets so high yeah you have to like walk out yeah as somebody who's driven and taken buses and trains across pennsylvania i want to say hundreds of times it's you know, Pennsylvania's the joke in the middle, which is like Pittsburgh's on the west, Philly's in the east, and then in between is a long, empty state. It's just trees and farmhouses and gas stations. And some of those farmhouses still has symbol on them to keep away witches. Didn't work. You I were still there. showed up. So you drove through. So what happened when you drove through with the axe? Oh, so yeah, when we were driving up, this we got lost and we just ended up on like a back highway. And I kid you not, it's called PA Route 666. Oh, good Lord. And we ended up in a town called Pigeon. It was basically a two-lane route, quote unquote, but it was like, it was paved. You know what I mean? But it was basically swallowed by trees. So it was full on cartoon level, made a wrong turn off the highway on a route called 666 in a town called Pigeon. And was there a guy at a gas station being like, you don't go down that road. I actually think that's a kind of a step up from where we were, because (laughs) where we were, everything was sort of shacks and like lean twos and shanties. And it was everything was sort of just pushed off back a little off the road. But there weren't like street signs or anything, you know, and there was like cinder block based bars. You could see that was like their commerce, you know, like they were hand built. And I bet they have good a beer shot special. I mean, good luck getting a beer shot special in a city. I mean, I maybe, but I don't know if we'd be invited into the cinder block bar. <laughs> no. So, yeah. So Route 666, it runs parallel to this really long winding river. And I swear to God, there were people fishing all along it who were doing the movie thing and turning and watching our van drive through town. <laughs> We can't ask any of these people where to go. They look like they actually want us to die. And yes, we were driving in a cargo van. And yes, it does sound like I'm actually just trying to remember an episode of (laughs) Scooby-Doo and confusing it with my life, but it's happened. Did you have a dog with you, Natalie? I swear to God, she did have a dog. Um, (laughs) Did it like sandwiches? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Who doesn't like sandwiches? (laughs) No, it was. There was four of us in a cargo van and it was insane. And we somehow managed to get our way out. But that was Northern Appalachia. And it's funny to think about I'm telling this tale as though it's like, you know, another planet, but there's probably people who live near there who maybe will hear this and be like, yeah, Pigeon is a place. But in my mind, it's like mythology at this point. Yeah, it sounds very medieval, to be honest. It it was really crazy. And uh, I did triple check all of that on Google Maps and it is there. So take that. I'm not crazy. (laughs) Was there a Google van driving through and just some guy pointing at the van like... (laughs) Sending it to hell. Is that How did the- they get this footage from 2001? <laughs> That's my roommate's van. So, yeah, 
Now, as makeshift as the area was, it's not that far from Monarch Conveniences, which is a thing we're going to talk about can become a big problem for people in this area. So before we get into further than that, I should just say this is obviously a name that comes from after colonization, the Appalachian Mountains that came from Spanish colonization, actually, though, of course, it was taken from a native tribe, the name that was a native tribe based in Florida, who sadly were from an area that became Tallahassee, which is sad for everyone. Oh, really? The, uh, so that's how it came? It's from Tallahassee? The, the name, yeah. The, okay. The name uh, Appalachian. I thought, and I'm, you know, I did... You know what? Never mind. Keep going. No, what? What? I thought it was Cherokee people in Tennessee. According to the internet, this is very limited. We'll we'll, we'll triple check it. But okay. according to the internet, that's... I just asked some dude at a bar and he was just like, no, I'm just kidding. That's <laughs> <laughs> like he might know better than the Wikipedia. <laughs> and as somebody from a city that is considered to be an Appalachia city, Pittsburgh, you know, I can't under it can't be understated. Like we've just said how vast some of these areas are of only trees and highways, like bigger than you think the country is sometimes. You're just America's like, huge. Yeah. My mother lives in Mississippi. We live in California. And I was like, I'll come drive to you. It'll take me what? Three days. <laughs> uh, yeah. Right. <laughs> oh no. It's a lot longer than three. It's days. a lot longer. I mean, you could, if you just like took some, some trucker speed or something. Probably get there. Bad out of hell. <laughs> um, you know, I was looking at, because we were going to talk about coal in a minute, but I was looking at, and speaking of the vast... Get ready, everybody. Get ready. Um, I was looking at the, um, just the vastness uh, mm -hmm. in like researching Appalachia. And before there was a coal crisis, there was a tree crisis. Because when colonists first came to America from Europe, they... It, they didn't like the climate of America. They thought it was too hot or too cold. So they first thought, oh, we just cut down all these trees. Sure. That'll create a better climate for us. I mean, that kind of created climate change in the long run. And then they wanted expansive farmland. So America used to be a lot more like Appalachia. Yeah. And then we, whoops, <laughs> caused <laughs> climate change. Oopsies. I mean, I do like, you know, I like my corn and my, my vegetables, shipped to me from Ralph's, but I also don't want... Well, yeah, I think there's a, an issue of as we gain more information over the generations, finding a balance. Yeah, a balance. Realizing like what's the most damaging and going, oh, I'm sorry. I know, because I would love to have a little farm out back, but the thing is, it's like I can go to Ralph's, that's our local grocery store, and get a head of cabbage for 25 cents, but if we have some like food shortage and whatnot, and I got a farm, that cabbage is no longer 25 cents. It's like my firstborn son. You know, that's the cost. Ooh. I don't have any kids. <laughs> Better get, 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 get some, find a kid somewhere. I guess. Trade them. Maybe you can get uh, cabbage patch kids. Can you can grow them in your cabbage patch? Grow children. Yeah, I can grow children. Yeah, <laughs> you're welcome. Um, so, and then Amber also like so. Uh, my hometown is sort of the northern Appalachia. Even though you spent your teen years in Louisiana, which is a little bit south, you also lived in other times in different little parts of. Yeah, of Appalachia. Appalachia. Yeah, Tennessee and also North Carolina, very close to Tennessee. I moved around a lot. Um, but it's it's still Southern, but it's a different kind of Southern than Mississippi. Yeah, and, and where you were wasn't, you weren't necessarily in the cut, but you were, it's it's towns. So you, basically, even with Pittsburgh, which is about 300,000 people, which is pretty small for a city, 
it's still completely surrounded by wilderness. And yes. that's sort of how you were. You weren't necessarily living on the mountains with the mountain people. No, no, no. I mean, I still walked to school. Like yeah. it was a very small town and like there was a grocery store very readily available. But like, you know, I didn't have to, you know, I, I wasn't living up way up in the mountains and like fetching water with a bucket. But did you play a jug? Yes, that's okay, what you, well. you're in the South. You are um, given a jug when you're 14. You're given a jug and a shotgun, uh-huh. and you say, "Go, go forth, make what you will with this, <laughs> child." Unfortunately, as charming and as beautiful as it, it can be out in those mountains, much like when we discuss Portsmouth and its opioid crisis, the same curse, quote unquote, has befallen much of the people of the mountains. Mm. And by curse, I mean pill manufacturers and greedy politicians, of course. Oh, my God. It's almost like corporations coming in and wanting to drain all the money out of people and then just making them desperate. And then, you know, they get sad and you want to feel happy. So get the drugs going. And then they also make money off of that and slowly kill American people and then wonder why we're just so upset right now. Yeah, a lot of that. And I think a lot of it is intentional and pointed. But I also think that some of it's like really stupid, like not realizing they're going to cause a huge problem and then having no way to fix it. And they're just like, well, at least we're making a bunch of money. That's it. And also no accountability. No one's taking them to court. No. I mean, if you go back to the first season when we covered the 23 pipeline, the the pitiful amount of punishment that the Purdue company got for everything that they did to that. Punish them. I mean, they nothing happened. Seize them. I wish we could still seize people. That's fun. I mean, <laughs> we, we do. Feather? We do, but they're usually like poor immigrants and stuff. No, no, no. We should um, tar and feather people. Like, you know, people that deliberately come in and ruin the lives of everybody. Yeah, Pill like mill. CEOs. Yes. Get them all. As you can probably deduce from the colloquial name Appalachia, it's sort of like a loose description of a certain area of the United States. It's named so because of its dwelling inside of and surrounding the Appalachian Mountain Range, while the Appalachian Mountains extend all the way up through Canada, Appalachia is considered to be the long swatch between New York and Mississippi, the true embodiment of hillbilly. Yeah. I mean, that quite literally, the first known instance of the word hillbilly in print was in the Railroad Trainmen's Journal in 1892. And then in 1899, a photograph of men and women in West Virginia was labeled Camp Hillbilly. Oh, I like it because they're up on a hill. It's true. I think it's kind of cute. If, you know, people call me a hillbilly, I don't care. No. I mean, I, I'm more known because I'm a bit of a city mouse. I'm more of a white trash myself. But, um, you know, I don't find it insulting. I mean, I just hearing the word Appalachia, I, you immediately just hear the banjos, you know, like you, at least I do. Yeah. And the jugs and also the um, what's it? That thing that goes over your chest and you go. Oh, yeah. The wa- the washing board thing. Yeah, for sure. So West Virginia, just FYI, is the only state to be considered entirely in all Appalachia. So because it's sort of a just like a it's not an official term, Appalachia. So the only entire like state that's in the mountain range is West Virginia. But there are many states that have sections of the state that are it. Yeah, like North Carolina has like the the small part of it. Yeah. And so Today, and this, on the series, we're going to be looking more towards the Tennessee section. In other words, the middle, like right smack in the middle. That's of Appalachia. where I live. That's where you lived. So central Appalachians experience the most severe poverty. 
which is partly due to the area's isolation from urban growth centers. There are cities, as we mentioned, but they remain small to medium-sized, and many live below the poverty line even within the city. So central Appalachia is portions of Kentucky, southern West Virginia, southern and southeastern Ohio, Virginia, and Tennessee. I like your drawl, honey. (laughs) I don't know if it's correct for that area. (laughs) You know, you're trying. I like it. Trying. So commerce within the the region, because in Pittsburgh, we have our own accent. It's it goes more. It's more more like Baltimore. Baltimore and Pittsburgh have like a very close accent, and it's not really like a southern. We're too north to be like a southern accent. It's more like I don't know. It's like we're river people. Allegheny County, Allegheny River goes between Pittsburgh and Baltimore. So. I think a lot of the same river people like talk to each other. Wow. It sounds like a if a valley girl knew how to can. <laughs> That's exactly what that sounds like, that accent. Yeah, I could see that. <laughs> yeah, we're just we're just at the the northern end. But yeah, so commerce within the region of central Appalachia expanded widely in the 19th century with the advent of modern industries like agriculture, coal mining, and like you said, logging. Um, well, like we were cutting a lot of trees down essentially. Many Appalachians sold their rights to lands and minerals to large corporations, which is a problem now that we're facing. And to the extent that 99% of the residents control less than half of the land. Wow, that sounds like a monopoly. Like, I never want to be like, I know we said earlier, like, hang the CEOs. You know, I kind of meant that as a joke. But like, I like companies. I'm a woman and I like living in the modern world. But there has to be, again, like we said, a balance. Right. This is a monopoly. Right. It's definitely... There's like five guys that control everything. Yes. I mean, for real. Though the area has a wealth of natural resources, it's considered one of the most beautiful places on Earth, uh, you know, like the mountains of Appalachia. Its inhabitants are often very, very, very poor. In addition, decreased levels of education and a lack of public infrastructure, such as highways, cities, businesses, medical services have perpetuated the region's poor economic standing. Yeah, the first day I moved, um, the first class, I got, like, someone had head lice in class, and then, like, everybody had head lice, and I was like, does everybody have head lice? And so I said, we all got lice here, and I got head lice. But that made you one of them. I guess so. You ain't got no lice. Why don't you, why don't you got no lice? No, no, and I remember I tripped, and all my books fell, and they all laughed and called me a bunch of slurs that were acceptable at the time, but not today. Wow. Yes. Mm, I'm going to have to just think about which ones they were. I know. Which one? Take your pick. <laughs> so this like last you know, little blurb I just said is a really brief way of stating that corporate needs superseded human needs and environmental needs until they ravaged the land enough that innovation was required. So many of those mills and mines shut down and nothing came to replace them. Now, and there's people losing their jobs. Yeah. So it's not great that we were, you know, ripping all the stuff out of the environment, but over time you learn how actually bad it is. Like, oh, we knew it was bad, but it's been, it's really bad we did this. But also those were the jobs that were available to the people there. Yeah. So it's sort of a a catch-22 where it really needs to stop, but those people also need jobs, but also probably jobs that aren't so life-threatening. Yeah, I mean, those jobs, it's hard work, but everybody says, like, it's in my blood, it's in my blood, family, like, whole families go down there to work. It's true. The coal mining places that are still open, they do provide a good salary for people, but it is, I mean, it is 
harrowing. It's like backbreaking work. It is. And you also, I mean, black lung is real. Yeah. Even though people aren't allowed to say that anymore because to keep their job, they have to be like, no, we love it down there. Damn. The air's great. I think it smells really nice. I saw a video of a 67 year old man who is still going down into those mines. And I'm talking like squeezing through these dark corners yeah. down in the earth. And I was like, get this man a reclining chair and a Bud Light. Please. I, uh, I mean, it, for the people who have work out there, it seems like they pretty much go until they drop dead. Yes. For better or worse, I guess. Knoxville, which is where we'll be talking about this first series of missing people, it has about a quarter of the population is under the poverty line, which is not good, comparable to the rest of the country. No. So Knoxville is within the Appalachia area, but is, a t you know, a small city. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. With poverty and scarcity comes a lot of health problems, like we just said. Yeah, I mean, you have to go to the dentist. You have to go to the doctor. A lot of your internal health thing, I just found out, comes from your teeth. Who knew? I do, because my teeth are absolutely terrible. And there were times when I was my poorest. I The closest I think I ever came to death was when I had an infection inside my gums. You told me that story. That is harrowing. And, you know, they I, I was left to die on the street in Brooklyn. <laughs> I, I managed to get enough money for them to pull the tooth out. I could have done it with pliers the way they treated me. I Yeah, I, I couldn't get out of bed for like two weeks. It was a severe in infection in my gums. So yeah, teeth are a huge issue, especially for a country that is supposed to be one of the wealthiest and nobody can afford dental care. I know. And why is dental care different from the rest of my body? I feel like my body's like a like a Netflix Hulu subscription. You know, like my teeth and like, Oh yeah, all different. Can't we just like make cable again? Yeah. <laughs> Put them all together. So yeah, this is from healthaffairs.org. Higher mortality in Appalachia from cardiovascular diseases, lung cancer, chronic lower respiratory diseases, or chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, diabetes, nephritis or kidney diseases, suicide, unintentional injuries, and drug overdose contributed to lower life expectancy in the region compared to the rest of the country. Widening health disparities were also due to slower mortality improvements in Appalachia. So, Ugh. yeah. So beyond lack of adequate health care and good food, those who still work in the coal mines, of course, are put at greater risk. But it's one of the only half-decent paying jobs, like I said. Of all the interviews and everything I've read throughout West Virginia, Kentucky, and Tennessee, the problem is that there are simply no jobs. Yeah. None. Like here, you know, I could go and apply to be a busser. Right. You know, at a restaurant. Yeah. I mean, it, that, that shit 
in a lot of these communities just doesn't even exist. So what is one to do in that situation? Clinical associate professor in the Department of Health Policy and Management at UNC Chapel Hill, whose name is Rebecca Slifkin, she did a study and she said this figure is startling. Between 1999 and 2013 in the United States, the age-adjusted mortality rate from all the drug overdose deaths were more than doubled. The rate from drug overdose deaths involving opioid analgesics more than tripled, and the rate from those deaths involving heroin nearly tripled, the study reads. Woo! <sighs> I mean, if you can't, like, you know, you don't have a job, you, you're born into this, this is all you know, you want to be happy, and well, how are you going to be happy? Do some fucking drugs. Well, the other thing that we'll get into with that problem is that Drugs become one of the sources of income for a lot of people because there aren't any jobs. Because you can just sell them. So you lock them up in a, in a safe. That's the most expensive thing you have it's, is your pills. Sadly, it's the reality. Yeah. So Appalachia, even though it provides a beautiful landscape, it also provides a distance from schools, better grocery stores, better jobs or sometimes jobs at all. Unlike a country, though, that has it parts of it completely removed from urban life, like say if we were living out in the jungles of Peru, it's close enough to society to have all of our horrible American trappings, fast food, an endless supply of cigarettes, hard street drugs, anything that makes you sick basically yeah. is there. And fast food is expensive and it's, we all know it's not good for you, but you know, here's a, here's a phrase you don't hear a lot. Fast food is expensive. I went and got something, you know how much? 10 bucks. Interesting. 10 bucks for my lunch. And I was like, I could cook. I could get $10 cash right now and go to the grocery. But then again, I have the privilege of a kitchen. I have spices. I have pots and pans. These are all like privileges well, I have. Yeah. And a lot of the communities are food deserts. So yeah. it's like fast food is the thing that's there. You Gas have stations. And that's it. Yeah. The life expectancy disparity that drugs bring isn't only from the actual use as well, but in the danger associated with using. Not that anybody deserves to be hurt, but because they suffer from addiction, it's just the harsh reality of it. Yeah, when you run drugs, you're going to do anything you take, anything it takes to get them. You're going to steal a car. And you're also going to be around other people who might be violent, who might be desperate, who might, you know, want to hurt you. So some of the best jobs out of Appalachia are based on pulling out all the natural resources like coal mining. But despite what some former presidents may have promised, those jobs aren't coming back. Beyond ravaging our environment, the sources aren't renewable. They have an expiration date because there's only so much of it. And no one is coming up into the area with other alternate livelihoods. They, again, are getting, you know, the run around with politicians saying, like, we're going to bring it back. We're going to bring coal back. It's like, no, it's not coming back. But we need to have other opportunities there for people. Yes. That were, you know. You can't just forget about people. No. They're still... I don't even want to say Americans. They're still human beings. Yeah, for sure. You know, and they're basically saying, you guys figure it out. Come up with your innovations or just move. But, you know, many, that equals selling drugs. Exactly. Many of those people barely received a passable high school education based on not really having schools around. Yeah. So they were lucky if they graduated high school. There were some people in my when I went there that just straight up didn't know how to read. And teachers would pass them on, just keep passing them on, because, like, I don't want to deal with it. I don't feel like it. I was next teacher. Yeah. Good luck. Up in the mountains, it's not that uncommon for adults to not have the ability to read. It's not that uncommon there. Still, in 20 fucking 22. 
because the school systems aren't in place. The structure isn't there. So I don't know what the fucking solution is. Let's figure it out today. Amber, let's do it. <laughs> More jobs somehow? I don't know. Yeah, we, yep. Nuclear power plant? No, God, I don't know. Uh, we do that? I was looking into nuclear and, you know, I'm sure I'll get people writing in, but it does look pretty safe. Nuclear has like, uh, yeah, it's very controversial, but there is a lot of ups to it. Yeah, but um, the reason why is we're probably not going to do it, invest in it, because it takes upfront investing. And it takes a good education system for a feeder program. So, like, the next generation knows how to run it and we don't all fucking die. Yeah, that's the, that's the, one of the scary parts about it. <laughs> so, uh, Kevin D. Williamson wrote, Those who have the required work skills, the academic ability, or the simple, desperate, native, enterprising grit to do so, get the hell out as fast as they can and have been doing that for decades. As long as they go... Businesses disappear, institutions fall into decline, social networks erode, and there is little or nothing left over for those who remain. So it's, you know, you go, well, why isn't, why can't they just stay and do that? Well, nothing. yeah. And another issue is because the people who are there are being ripped apart by drug use, by pills. In 2009, ABC put out a special by Diane Sawyer called Hidden America, Children of the Mountains. In it, there are some really interesting points to pull out. It follows a few families and their struggles in rural Kentucky. And those struggles are real. Yeah. They're living in a way that many of us could hardly comprehend. They have to go get their water. Like, we're, I'm so spoiled that I can go turn my water on or, like, flush a toilet. And there are places even now, and I don't want to say everybody in Kentucky, but, like, up in the mountains— Good. You, if you have to go to the bathroom, you go outside to an outhouse. Yeah. And I mean, they're, they portray a family in this series where uh, one of the parents was trying to get their GED and they they were forced to walk eight miles both directions every day to finish the program. That's a they story a you tell your grandkids when they, <laughs> when but they it's act like, up. That's what it's like for them to have to just get a regular diploma, like a high school diploma. In order for them to do that, it takes that much. And like, that's just to start life. Yeah. You yeah. know? And that, yeah. And it was an adult who had to drop out because of pregnancy, I believe. And then they got, wanted to go get, do it again, get their life back in order. And that's the requirement that they had to do to get there because they didn't have any other resources. But in mentioning this documentary, it has also received some criticism. Um, in all the ways they showed these people suffering and struggling, they downplay the role the pharmaceutical industry plays in their uh, suffering. Yeah. So if you remember the Portsmouth and the Sackler family, their cute little startup. Cute little startup. Well, maybe the opioid people are funding some of the news networks. I don't know. I'm just throwing some bullshit out here today, Natalie. It's quite possible. I think that, yes, I think that there may have been an aspect of that it wouldn't be a sexy version of telling the story. It's an easier way to romanticize it if we're looking at it. Oh, they're just struggling up here. Why? I don't know. <laughs> um, yeah, the the really the pharmaceutical industry is one of the biggest problems that they're all facing. here. Evil. I mean, people need drugs. But again, there's a balance. Yeah. And the way that our healthcare system is set up is not for poor people very much of the time. So not only do the the poorest people hooked on drugs get the finger pointed at them in these situations, but they also get classified as the only people to play a part in their own poverty. The myth of the bootstraps, 
reared his ugly head once again. You know, in reality, they're probably the least responsible for what's become of rural Tennessee. There are incredibly wealthy and affluent people who come through or even live within these communities who have done so by climbing on the backs of the longtime citizens. They become millionaires from the, you know, the cheap labor that they get to, you know, destroy the environment, essentially. And also the pill people who come in and take any last dollar that these people have. There's a book called Twilight and Hazard that is written by a journalist, Alan Maiman, who, by the way, has criticized the Diane Sawyer portrayal of Kentucky. And in his book, he says... In reality, some are incredibly wealthy, and that is important to portray because it is impossible to understand the struggles of the region without acknowledging the socioeconomic inequalities that arise from having a regional ruling class. The people at the top of the Eastern Kentucky financial ladder, everyone from the late mayor of Hazard to the coal executives who live in the mansions and vacation in exotic locales, are integral to the story of how power has been gained and exerted in the region. But that type of investigation wouldn't make for entertaining primetime television. It would only feed fears of class warfare. So he's mentioning there, like what you just said, Amber, where it, you know, it might not make for a fun little thing you can watch and go, oh. And class warfare is real. And I think that's one of the most pressing issues in America right now. Class warfare. And, you know, you need a middle class. We don't got one. (laughs) (laughs) So I guess we'd be considered middle class. Uh, yeah, we would, which is not a r- traditional middle class. I live in an, a room in an apartment. And, you know, it, now we live in gig economy. So there's some things to say about, well, you're not stuck with the same salary for the next 50 years. But, you know, it's sort of an up and down situation. It's not stable. Yeah. And most most of the time, middle class would be consistent with the idea of stability, which is not something that we have at all in this country. So that is to say in in what he was saying in his book that not only has there been some stereotyping of the poor in Appalachia, you know, the ignorant mouth breathing inbred. <laughs> which I never want to do. You know, I know we've we've talked about it a little bit on the show, but like people in Appalachia, um, I never want to like be like Boo. disparage them or anything. Yeah, no. for sure. But also there's been some romanticization of their reality. Oh, they're hill folk. It's just their way. They're different. It's just they don't have hospitals and grocery stores because it's out. That's their way of life. It's just like that, like a woman going through with pictures being like, pose for the camera. This is so fun. Right. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> I oh mean, that's God, what ABC was doing. Adorable. Yeah. But it is that way. And you go, oh, well. Yeah, they don't have hospitals, but that's just how they act. That's just how they do. It's cute. Do a little spin for us. Yeah. That's what ABC just did. Kind of. So I also I worked on a fictional show called Outsiders that portrayed Appalachia in this way. And I'm not criticizing the show, but I do think it's leaning into our romantic version of the hills where it's like it sort of looked like a combination of cottage core mixed with like, you know, the the area where the Lost Boys lived in Hook. Yeah. Where it's just like, oh, we made a bicycle out of twigs? Wow. Yeah, yeah. How fun. How fun. And also the ruling class, I think they just hate poor people. I remember I went on um, kind of an interview with this TV exec and he was going to like make a show for me. This is years ago. You know what he called me? Poor white trash. I don't, Hey, I can only say that. <laughs> yeah, with love. But they they just hate. And I'm like, we, we 
pay your bills. Like, we keep your lights on, dude. True. Why do you hate us so much? Because if poor people revolted and they, stopped working, guess what? You're going to get fucked. It's I, not Atlas Shrugged, dude. You're going to be fucked. <laughs> I do think that a lot of them... And some base level know that they are mediocre and that they are mediocre. they fear other people who are stronger than they. Who's going to come do your plumbing? Poor people. Who's I mean not poor? Sorry, but like people that you think you're better than. Right. You think you're better, like than the person who comes and fix your lighting system. Fuck you, man. I get mad. Oh, I I understand. <laughs> if I was left to deal with a lot of my house issues, I would be in big trouble. I do think we get that illusion of what Appalachia is also sometimes. And then, you know, also it would I would have to say, you know, we have to think about the the racism issue. And I'm certain that there are racists everywhere, including in Appalachia. A lot of people are really just trying to survive and aren't even thinking about these things. And also, despite the trope, there is a number of black communities in Appalachia, even though it's a vast minority. There's a book about it called Blacks in Appalachia, if you ever want to check that out. And also, I just wanted to throw this out here. There's an artist named Moses Sumney who did a video album essentially called Black Alacha where he performs it all in the Blue Hill Mountains and it is so fucking dope and magical. So you should check that out. He kind of sounds like Sal Williams with like Muse. Anywho, the romanticization of the people of Appalachia is partly why when they go missing, it takes longer to acknowledge it. And when acknowledged is not taken as seriously. They just step on the mountain singing on their jugs. Right. So this distinction is one they share, unfortunately, with sex workers everywhere or, you know, like innocent black teenage girls minding their business. As far back as 1998 or 99, we see the Oxycontin monster start ravaging the people of Appalachia and more specifically eastern Tennessee, where the missing people were discussing in this series call home. While not vilifying addicts, it's important to acknowledge the many roles opioids have played in any of these people's stories, not just from using, but being around those who use, being around those who deal, being around those who are dangerous, and not being taken seriously when they disappear. I think one of the most frustrating and maddening footage you can see from all of the Sawyer, the ABC documentary, is the sting operations they they show, they portray, arresting the most poor, exhausted, desperate people for selling the pills that were handed out to them like candy from doctors. Interesting how they didn't arrest the doctors. I know. I mean, it's just, it makes me mad. We're told some prescription drugs like Xanax and Lortab have a street price from $5 to $15 per pill. But OxyContin, even if you can only get it once a month, is the prize. Our driver and undercover detective says the dealer can be anyone next door. It's just survival. It's not... I'm trying to hurt anybody or nothing, you know. I think you see drug addiction in communities where people don't see a place for themselves, don't see a trajectory. A babysitter deals Oxycontin while a child watches cartoons. A mayor indicted for trading pills for votes, so he pled not guilty. Sorry, no problem. And for every adult dealing or using drugs, a child begins to drown. Sorry for the sappy music in there. It's definitely to, to pull on heartstrings. That footage that you just heard is of a middle-aged mom looking frail and tired as she's getting handcuffs slapped on. Oh, my God. Finally ridding the streets of her dangerous nature. This middle-aged mom, what's she going to do? Not? She's just trying to make any money. She just doesn't have, they have no money. There's no jobs. So she's selling pills and then she gets 
you know, she goes to jail for it. And the cops have to make some kind of quota so that I'm sure they have to. Yeah. And I'll have a quote from a, a cop here in a, in a minute who was starting to question his life. Yeah. When pain is everywhere and there's no form of actual therapy or health care in sight, people are just prescribed everything under the sun in America. Even medications like antidepressants for the poor generally come with no care from a mental health specialist like overseeing it. So it's like putting a Band-Aid on a bullet wound. Yeah. There's probably a lot of trauma and you grow up and you're sad. And then someone's like, hey, take these antidepressants, but you're not really solving the root of the sadness. You're not. Yeah. Like in an ideal world, if you are in a position where you need medication, which is completely cool. I take medication. It's great for people who need it. You want to be under the care of mental health specialists because they want to be monitoring you. You want to be walking through why maybe some things that have happened that caused your brain to go in this direction, that kind of stuff, you know. But if they're lucky and they just get antidepressants and not painkillers, then they're not really dealing with the problem as much as this, like, again, just like putting a Band-Aid on something. In fact, when the only way local authorities in a lot of these areas – see to deal with the drug problem is to put people in jail and to look at addicts like menaces, which does absolutely nothing. The war on drugs is, of course, dog shit. Well, it does something because um, these are for-profit jails, right? Yeah. So that's what it does. They're, making, they're turning the economy. They're making it's money, great. baby. Well, that, you're right. I never <laughs> thought of it like that. <laughs> They are doing a good thing. So there's a state trooper named Chris Fugate who was interviewed for the book Twilight and Hazard. And he says, I started seeing these people as problems and not as people. He says, I was going to arrest everybody and the world was going to be saved. On a roundup that netted nearly two dozen arrests, Fugate found himself in the home of a Perry County woman who had lost a son to a drug overdose. His framed photo sat next to a Bible on the dresser in her trailer. The question that the woman asked him that day is burned in his memory. She said, Chris, you're a good Christian. Can you tell me if my son is going to heaven or hell? Fugate left the holler that day, questioning his calling in life. Good Lord. So, so sad. So there's just multitudes in that passage. I mean, one that people can sometimes look at addicts or the unhoused as annoyances or eyesores and like, you know, this state trooper was saying he was falling into that pattern of being like, oh, oh, yeah. such a pain in the ass, you know. Also, he has power. Anybody like the middle management, I find are the worst people in the company mm -hmm. because they you just give somebody like a little bit of power, just a little flicky nerd. And not all cops are like that, of course, but like you give somebody just a little bit of power and then they're just like king shit all of a sudden. Well, especially if they have their own issues going on that they're not dealing with and they take it out on people with their little tiny little fleck of power. I know. And not all cops are like that. Obviously, Fugate is questioning what he's doing here. Yeah. And in, in that, you know, we do as a society often look at people who are addicted to things as like, you know, pain. And, oh, just annoying. Uh, stop. Instead of people who are in crisis, who have nowhere to turn. That's a big problem we have in this country. And then, too, you know, that being down and out can be equivalent to being evil by some people's measures. And this poor woman who is trying to turn to religion for, for help, she's been convinced by society maybe that because her son was a drug addict that he was bad and that he might be burning. And this cop is just like, what am I doing? Like she's asking him if she thinks, you know, if he thinks – 
her son is in hell right now because he is doing drugs. It's, oh my God. And it just takes one person to just fuck around and be like, yeah, he's in hell. And then she's she's distraught. Yeah. And then as the state trooper, if somebody has a conscience going like, I'm just like running raids on these people. And, and this is like they're asking me if her son's in hell or not. It's just like, ugh, it's really sad. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. We're focusing on one section of Appalachia this series, the eastern side of Tennessee. Knoxville is a city, of course, though, like we mentioned, has a large impoverished community and it is completely in the middle of the forest. It's just like a little city that's kind of like dropped in the middle of Appalachia. I've um, been in Knoxville. It's beautiful. I don't think I've ever been in Knoxville. I've been, it's close to Nashville-ish, right? Kind of. I remember it being like, I've never been to Nashville, but I've been to Knoxville. Hmm. You know? Yeah. Well, you know, but so since you've been there, you, you know, the downtown's like pretty small. It's not a, a large city. It's got about 200,000 people, essentially. So it's a small, it's, it's smaller than Pittsburgh, if that helps anybody. So Bonnie Lou Drain, somebody who fits into the statistic of the large impoverished community of Knoxville. Bonnie Lou Drain was born in 1972, and it appears that she's always lived in and around that little area there. She has five children, most of whom are adults. One is still a teenager and is married, though at the time of her disappearance was separated from her husband. Her and her husband had met at N.A., and he was getting a higher education in 2017. She unfortunately had had relapses, so she was living at a halfway house, and then she failed a drug test at the halfway house she was at, and so they, you get kicked out if that happens. Damn. So that's where she was in her life at that point. Which yeah. Amazing. But the thing about Bonnie, everybody said that she was a working drug addict. Mm -hmm. So she would use, but then like get up and go to work the next day. Yeah. So she's what is known as high functioning addict. Am I a high functioning alcoholic perhaps? Uh, we all are a little, you know. <laughs> but yes, it's somebody who can go through an, a pretty severe addiction. A family friend of ours was like that. She held down a like, high-end office job but was always drunk <laughs> yeah like it was it's like doing taxes being like i don't know natalie just like live laugh love you just wind up in jail <laughs> i mean she never did that's the crazy thing is she just she could hold this job down have a kid and all this stuff and just was always always drunk wow. um yeah that's impressive it's yeah she died really young though oh so it doesn't, it catches up with you. That's basically what I'm the saying. The drugs and alcohol. I've had to like, I don't want to say, like break up with friends because they want to do drugs 
all the time. It's never like, let's go to a movie or let's go to the museum. It's like, let's do LSD and go to the museum. And I'm like, right. that's fun like once, but right. like every weekend, bye. Yeah, it can become a lot, you know. But, you know, with like with Bonnie, she had, you know, addiction issues. She was obviously trying really hard to break that cycle. She, that's where she met her husband, you know, like going through NA. And so at the time she went missing, they weren't living together. Her husband's name is Tim Freet. Drain, by the way, which is a new one for me. I like it. Tim yeah. Freet. Bonnie's Facebook says that they were married in 2013. So he has not been named as a suspect at all and has been vocal in talking to the media and, and going like on foot, handing out flyers and stuff. I don't think he has anything to do with this. Like so many, Bonnie had a drug dependency. And in this case, it was crack. However, like we said, she was a functioning addict. She maintained a job and communications with her family, her children and her mother. Her mom and children have been very vocal and active in getting Bonnie's name and face into the public. That may be why the news stories say that Bonnie Drain went missing, but the reality is that three people disappeared on or near the same day, Bonnie and her two roommates. This is a notable re for two reasons. One, because obviously three grown adults with such a close connection disappearing with no traces left behind is a big deal. But two, the other two missing here, Brenda K. Carroll and William Dale Inkelberger, are not always mentioned in the stories, or if so, in passing. This really goes to show you that having family advocates is paramount to getting your story on the news. I, I believe it's mostly because Bonnie's family is the most vocal that she gets the most media attention, which is still very little. Yeah. I mean, I, like, I had to like dig into this case and I was like, there's two other people? Yeah. Wow. For, for sure. Not that we know for sure that Brenda or William, who goes by Will, don't have a lot of family who care, but we do know that they haven't been as front and center in the story. It's a shame because I don't know how to say this without sounding completely gross, but... If I was marketing this story, three people disappearing at once is a much catchier headline, like a, a, the missing trio, not not to sound completely cynical, but that is a lot of times how you get attention is like to have a hook. Yeah. More um, missing people is just like, what happened? Yeah. So Brenda Carroll, who was last seen with Bonnie in December of 2017, was in her late. 30s or early 40s at the time, which is close to Bonnie's age, who was 45, I believe, at the time of her disappearance. So Brenda, her roommate, was also in the throes of addiction using both crack and opioids. Will was struggling as well with both crack and opioids. So they were friendly with each other, which is why they were living together at the time of all of this happening. Will as well was in his 40s. So, you know, they were all in the same age range. They seemed to have like a friendship of sorts. Um, yeah, it's like Golden Girls, but with crack. Yes. <laughs> yes, exactly like that. While there are, you know, many parts of Knoxville that are flourishing, it is a city and there there's an economy. It's not as, you know, bad off as it is up in the hills. There is a big poverty community and Barney was not from the affluent side of town. I've never been to Knoxville, like I said, but other, you know, other than my standard satellite tour on Google Maps and my Zillow review, which I try to always do when we're talking about different cities, 
I, I can see that it's not a big place, both in area and population, you know, yeah. small city. My parents always like small cities. And I remember in Knoxville, there was a four-way stop. And my dad was like, this city is huge. <laughs> so some people would consider it a big city. Got to get out of this urban lifestyle. Yeah. In December of 2017, Bonnie and Brenda were living together in this apartment on a street called Linden Avenue in eastern Knoxville. Will had also been living there, but the trio had had their power shut off earlier in the month, and he sort of bounced. Also in December, it's cold. Mm, yeah, I'm sure even down there it's freezing. So, And also in that time of year, there's not that much daylight, so it's soon going to be pitch black, you know, like 4.30. So at that point, Will was like, I got to get out of here. He called his dad up, and his dad said, okay, I'm going to get you a month's worth of a hotel stay at this place nearby called the Inn of Knoxville. So his dad paid for that whole month for Will to get out and be in like heat and power and everything. And he also paid for a month's worth of minutes on Will's phone. That's a lot of money. Yeah. I imagine when your kid is struggling, even when your kid is an adult, you do what you can to try to keep contact with them. You're I always a parent, I yeah, guess. It don't yeah. stop at 18. Yeah, it shouldn't, in my opinion. <laughs> so this is, you know, we're talking mid-December 2017. This is happening. On December 27th, Bonnie went to the University of Texas Medical Center to visit a family member who had been shot. So her family physically saw her this day. Brenda was also with Bonnie. She wasn't there visiting Bonnie's family, but was in the car when Bonnie stopped at the hospital. So Brenda was mostly hanging out in the parking lot that day. But Bonnie's mother, Lucille Roberts, who has talked to the media a lot, says that she went down and she met Brenda and had asked Bonnie about who she was because Lucille had never met her before. Bonnie said that Brenda was a new friend of hers, but that she was a good person, and so she just introduced yeah. her mom to her. Also, everybody says that Bonnie was, like, very friendly. Yeah. That's why, I like, my heart goes out to this case, because, you know, this is a very friendly, open person. And her mother said, like, I feel like that's – I always thought that was going to get her in trouble someday. Right. Her mom has said that on the news several times, that she tried to – get Bonnie to be like a little bit more closed off to people because Bonnie was a very open person. And like we were saying, even though she was struggling with addiction, she still maintained relationships with all of her kids and they had their own kids as well. Some of whom she hasn't met now because it's been four years and that they, you know, all of these people clearly loved her. They still celebrate her birthday every year and, you know, include her in holidays. Bonnie thought that Brenda was a good person. So it's unclear whether or not Will was with them this day at the hospital, but no one directly saw him. Coincidentally, probably coincidentally, this is the first day of the month-long stay at the Inn of Knoxville for Will. So December 27th is both the first day for him to be staying at this hotel that his dad gifted him. And it was the, the last night that a lot of people saw Bonnie at this hospital, is it? Ooh, you come and stay at me at the hotel, have some fun. And that's kind of the question. So were they on good terms with him? It's not clear. But two days later on the 29th, or Lucille believes it was two days later, she met up with Bonnie to give her money outside of a gas station. It's called Weigel's or Weigel's. I'm sorry for locals. Weigel's? Hmm. Um, maybe. The location was on Rutledge Pike, apparently, which 
It hasn't been clearly stated by any of the media outlets I've seen, but they're looking at the map. There's a Waggles directly across from the inn of Knoxville that appears to be right off of Rutledge Pike. So I, no one has stated this, but it seems like maybe she was meeting her mom at the gas station outside of this motel where Will was staying. But this is apparently two days after the hospital visit. So her mom claims to have seen her two days later. It would be quite a coincidence if it was that gas station across from the inn of Knoxville that, and she wasn't hanging out with Will. So maybe he got, you know, the hookup with this room and he invited his former roommates over. He was just like, yeah, I've got heat on. Maybe they're all hanging out, doing whatever. Is this where they found trouble? For what it's worth, Lucille says Bonnie seemed normal and didn't appear to be under duress or anything out of the ordinary that day when she saw her. But she gave her money. So you don't know what that, it could have been used for drugs. Lucille said it was for laundry, but a lot of times addicts. They'll lie. I mean, I used to have a girl be like, can I have some money for food? And then she's turn around and buy drugs. I had to stop giving her money. She's like, but I'm hungry. And I was like, you never bought food. I'm sorry. Yeah. But I, I, like we were just talking about with Will, I think maybe with Lucille and all these people, you know, when somebody in your family is an addict, you either have to cut them off or sometimes you enable them a little bit, but it's because you want to make sure they're okay. You know, it sucks. But I think it was a not that non-common of a, a situation that Lucille would be giving her money. According to Will's father, whose name is Jimmy, that same day, December 27th, again, was the last contact he had with his son. That was, again, the same day that his long stay at the motel started. So that was the last contact that his father had with Will. If Lucille's recollection is correct, she gave money to Bonnie two days after this. Brenda has had the least family interactions with the news. She has a sister who she maybe doesn't have a good relationship with or at least like a close relationship with because uh, whose name is Jacqueline Ellis because she didn't report Brenda as missing right away. I imagine that they went long periods of time without being in contact with each other because Brenda was, again, suffering with an addiction. So she probably was not always around. So Brenda didn't get a missing report filed as quickly as the other two did. And this is the blonde woman. Yes. And this is the blonde woman with the the dark eyebrows painted on. Brenda also has a boyfriend whose name is Sean Day. Not much is known about him. He says that she texted him Merry Christmas on Christmas Day, so a couple days before she was last seen. It's also known that she and this boyfriend had violent altercations before, but he has not been named a suspect. I believe he actually might have been in jail at the time. So that's his alibi. Which is a good alibi to have. Brenda's sister, Jacqueline, received a text from her f- from Brenda's phone asking for money for food and cigarettes on January 1st, 2018. So this January 1st, New Year's Day, is the latest that anybody had any form of contact with any of them. So it's been like four or five days. They're just kind of maybe chilling in this motel together. Yeah, perhaps. But to Jacqueline's point, There's no real way to know whether or not that was actually Brenda. She didn't respond anything after that. And so they don't, her family doesn't necessarily know if that was Brenda texting that. Right. It could just be somebody on the other, like a dude. Could be. Merry Christmas. Well, Merry Christmas. I'm sorry, not Merry Christmas. uh, Asking for food and cigarettes on January 1st. So yeah, this is about five days after Bonnie's mother saw Brenda physically in the parking lot of that hospital. Will's dad, after not seeing or hearing from him for a week or so 
after, you know, he got him the hotel the 27th. He got him the card money for the phone. Yeah. And so he's like trying to, you know, get a hold of his son that week. He's not hearing from him, which might not be that unusual. But finally, he's like, where is he? So he goes to make his first attempt on January 5th to locate him physically. Oh, so it's been like five, 10 days. It's been... Since the 27th. Yeah, it's been like seven, eight days. Okay. Yeah. So he starts knocking on the door. Nothing, you know, then he goes in because he has a key because he bought, he paid for it. He sees that his son has been there, but the son's not there. So he tries back in a couple days later. It doesn't look like anything's been touched in the room since he came the last time. Man, I mean, if you're getting me a month long stay in a motel, I'm chilling watching TV, man. Oh my God, totally, right? I'd be lounging. Yeah. On January 10th, after those two attempts, he files a missing persons report. He tries once more on January 13th to see if Will has come back. It does not look again like Will has been there at all. I mean, since the first attempt to see him. His missing persons report was filed January 10th. Will's last Facebook post was December 2nd. Bonnie had not posted since November of 2017, so a month or so before she disappeared. And Brenda's Facebook seems to have been deleted or taken down. That is fishy. Because, you know, like this community, they love Facebook. The, the two that were left up, Bonnie and Wills, they were pretty regular posters, but they weren't like daily posters. Mm. Over in Bonnie's family, they had already st- started taking action at this point. So Will's dad started the missing report on January 10th. Bonnie's family stayed in closer contact with Bonnie. So... They were pretty immediately scared. And so they had also been in contact with the police by that point. But at this point, I don't think as far as anybody knew that these two people were missing simultaneously because the families didn't really know each other. They're not talking to each other. Yeah. And so, this, you know, I don't think Jimmy Will's dad even knew who Bonnie was or anything. So they're going through these two separate missing people situation. And then within that trying to figure it all out, realize Brenda is also missing at this point. At some point in the coming months, however, it becomes clear that all three of these people have evaporated and seemingly within a window of one week of one another, or it could have been at the same exact time. I mean, it's very likely it could be simultaneously, whatever happens. So I'm going to leave off here and we'll pick up the rest of Bonnie, Brenda, and Will's story next week. But for now... Bonnie Drain is a Caucasian female. She is 5'7", weighs about 130 pounds. She has brown hair, brown eyes. She has a tattoo on the inside of her left wrist with the word daddy with a heart and a mask. Her ears are pierced. I don't have any tattoos, but I feel like I should get one just because that's such an identifier if you go missing. I guess if you want to get the saddest tattoo on her. <laughs> this is so somebody finds me. Just my social security number. Just put that on Don't me. do that. No. <laughs> Credit card number. <laughs> so, yes. And then Brenda Carroll, she is a Caucasian female, blonde hair, hazel eyes. Carol has a tattoo of a flower on the top of her wrist and multiple star tattoos on the back of her hand. She also tends to have a very prominently darkened eyebrows in all of her pictures. She has gaps between her teeth and her lower jaw. Her hair naturally is brown, but it was dyed blonde at the time of her disappearance, and she does seem to dye it a lot. She's 5'1", about 150 pounds, and was around 45 years old at the time of this recording. Will Inkelbarger is a Caucasian male. He has black hair, hazel eyes. Inkelbarger's nickname is Will. He had a mustache and a goatee at the time of his disappearance. He has a scar on his right hand, a tattoo of a sunburst on his left bicep, a tattoo of a cross on his left forearm, and a tattoo of an eagle with a man's face and a skull on his right bicep. 
Inkelbarger also smoked cigarettes. He weighs 150 pounds. It's about six foot and was 45 at the time of this recording. If you have any thoughts, any memories of these people, know anything at all, please contact the Knoxville Police Department at 865-215-7000. And uh, yeah, thanks Amber for, for joining me today. We will continue their story next week. You can follow the show at someplace underneath and follow me at The Natty Jean. You can follow me on Amber Smelson. S-M-E-L-S-O-N on all social media platforms. It is Natalie and Amber, as always, Saucy, Pert, and Greasy. See you next time. This show is made possible by listeners like you. Thanks to our ad sponsors. You can support our shows by supporting them. For more shows like the one you just listened to, go to lastpodcastnetwork.com. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and... Producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at discounttire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire.